suffering from a well-known spring condition uh, known as the bike seat blues. If you've ever gone on a bike ride in the spring for the first time in a long time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm just very glad I'm doing the standing today, not the sitting, let's say. <laughs> um, this morning, um, my message is entitled, Terms, Conditions, and Benefits. And um, I kind of had this revelation of sorts um, past few weeks here. And when it comes to these terms and conditions and benefits, these are like these contracts that we sign all the time or just say that we read or something. You know, whether you sign up for eBay or Facebook or Ticketmaster or even if you buy a fridge or something, you're given like this huge booklet of information, terms, conditions, warranty, whatever. And you pretty well never read that, like ever. There's all sorts of fine print in there that we have no idea about at all. And the thing is, if we were to actually sit down and read how all these things, like for how many we get in a year, all these, all these big documents, it would actually take you about 50 days of your life every year to read every word of those documents if you're only breaking to sleep. And there's a problem with that, because ain't nobody got time for that. So it's kind of this really weird phenomenon that's happening kind of in society, that the biggest lie in society now is I have read and agreed to the terms and conditions. In real life, they just should put... I haven't read this and I'm okay with that. But anyways, what kind of dawned on me is actually a lot of people treat the Bible in the same way. They're here to, you know, uh, take in the product that is church, have a relationship with Jesus, but they've never read the terms and conditions and the, uh, and the benefits that come with this agreement that they've made with Jesus. So this morning we don't have time to go through every term, condition, and benefit that is in Scripture. Uh, there's a lot, but I'm going to show you kind of how to figure out if the Bible is kind of your guide to what it means to be a Christian. How do you figure out, um, you know, which of the commands you follow, which the ones you don't, you don't follow. And I want to end also with a, a little brief summary of the greatest benefit package of all time that you get when you decide to follow Jesus. So first off, and this is a bit of a longer section here, is the no longer applicable section of the Bible. Um, now, why this is very important is it's very common for someone to rip a Bible verse right out of context and throw it in your face and challenge you of why you're not following that anymore. Um, so anyways, that's kind of what we're going to look at in this first section here. So in the Old Testament, there is 613 laws, 365 do-nots, 248 do's. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot going on here, but if you stay with me here, things are going to get really simplified. It'll be nice. So the Old Testament actually means the Old Covenant. It means the Old Deal. And since, since then, there has been a new deal, a new covenant, a new agreement. See, so the, the original terms and conditions of being a follower of God were a temporary measure for a specific people in a specific time. And they're designed for the ancient tribes of Israel in a very barbaric and primitive world. So the temporary aspect of the Old Testament has been, it's been made clear many, many different times throughout Scripture. So in the Old Testament and the New Testament both talk about this topic. So hundreds of years before Jesus came, uh, there was prophets that would talk about what was coming down the pipe, what was coming in the future, what God was doing. 
We're going to read here from Jeremiah 31. Verse 31 too. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this new covenant I will make uh, with my people, with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now here's one from the New Testament, Galatians 3. I'm going to read verse 19, skip a couple verses, 23, 24, 25. Uh, Galatians 19. So why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. That's very important. That's part of why the law was there, to show people that we aren't righteous. You know, we're not actually as good of people as we think we are. And God is holy. So that's the very important aspect of what was going on there. It says, um, but the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. Also throughout the Old Testament, Jesus is prophesied continually hundreds of years in advance that someone's going to come that's going to change everything. This is one of the things that he changed. Skipping to 23 here. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could, could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. So in some respects, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is kind of like a babysitter. And like when you're a kid, you need a babysitter. When you, the context changed, you, lo, you no longer need it. And the context that changed is that Jesus came, and so the old terms and conditions were replaced. And so they don't apply to Jesus' followers. So there was a sacrificial system, and that's a good chunk of some of the, the laws that were back in the Old Testament. And you'll notice this morning, if you take a quick look around, there is no um, cows and goats and sheep running along here. People did not bring that to the house of God this morning. That is long gone. If you happen to try to do that, we'll probably just kick you out. Uh, unless we're having like a petting zoo that Sunday or a real-life manger scene or something. Anyways, that, that's, that's something that's long gone. Here it is in Scripture, uh, Hebrews 10, 8, or sorry, yeah, Hebrews 10, 8, 8 through 10. First Christ said, you do not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they are required by the law of Moses. Again, they were a placeholder. They weren't there for, for all time. They weren't doing the real job. It was Jesus who was the sacrifice that they were um, essentially celebrating in faith and didn't even realize it thousands of years in advance. Verse 9, then he said, look, I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all time. Jesus' Jesus's single sacrifice put to end the whole sacrifice system for all time. Also in the Old Testament, there's a bunch of dietary restrictions. Like one of them would be that they didn't eat um, any seafood that wasn't fish. And that's always... That's, Honestly, it's a pretty good pro tip if you live in the middle of the desert and someone has packed a bunch of seafood across a hot desert on the back of a horse or a camel for multiple days and then they offer you some fresh lobster, don't eat that lobster. It's one of the rules that was in there. It's for a reason, for a context. God's trying to take care of his people there. There's, also, there's a lot of beautiful symbology that happens um, with all of that too that we don't have time to go into. But again, God knows what he's doing there and he's trying to teach them things. 
Um, but anyway, so Jesus had to deal with that question when he came. And uh, here's one of his famous quotes here. Um, Mark 7, 18, he says, Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but it only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. So again, the, the original tribes of Israel, they had a very strict diet, and there was a lot of reasons around that. But when Jesus came, he put an end to that and said, like, nothing that goes into your body food-wise can, can defile you. Jesus is concentrating on what going, what's going into your heart. What's going into your heart? Um, there's also a bunch of ceremonies and festivals. Uh, lots of kind of rules and regulations around that. Uh, that has nothing to do with us today. And there's also their law system, their judicial law system. And we don't live in that country. We don't live in that context. So those laws do not apply to us. But what's worth noting is that much of our modern-day judicial system is actually based on um, the ancient Israel judicial system. A lot of biblical practices are actually in our judicial system. Um, here's like a random fun one just really pulled out of the Old Testament randomly that I'll show you is still around to this day. Deuteronomy 22.8. When you build a new house, you must build a railing around the edge of its flat roof. That way you will not be considered guilty of murder if someone falls from the roof. To this day, if you were to build a flat roof or a balcony, um, a deck out back or house, and there was no railing on it and somebody fall off, fell off, you would be liable. Interesting that thousands of years ago they also knew that that needed to happen. So if you happen to have, if you're breaking that rule right now, fix that when you go home. Or you could go to jail. But here's a bunch of those rules that you won't recognize because they're totally not around anymore at all. And when we read them, they seem very strange. Deuteronomy 22, verse 9, 10, 11 here says, Do not plant two kinds of seeds in your vineyard. Do not plow with a horse and an ox harnessed together. Do not wear clothing made of wool and linen woven together. Which are you talking about, Willis? I know this is some strange stuff. Why is that in the Bible? What's going on here? But when you know the historical context and what's going on there, things start to make sense. So Israel's neighbors were probably um, some of the most disturbing, messed up people, maybe probably the most that have ever walked the earth. And they were actually obsessed with mixing things. That was an act of worship to them, to mix things. So the God that they worshipped, Baal, he's actually a half-human, half-bull. Fake God, by the way. Um, and speaking about mixing things that shouldn't be mixed, he was in love with this sister. And these people would worship Baal by committing vile acts like incest and bestiality. And the more that they would mix things up, the more they thought they would be blessed. So mixing was worship to them. You might say these people were a little mixed up. And God's telling his people, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> Just don't do that. That's dumb. Mixing things is not going to lead to your life being blessed. See, radically different contexts these days, but yet we still have a bunch of mixed up people running around. They're chasing blessings in ways that are never going to work. They're going to fountains that are totally dry, looking to be replenished. So many people today worship things um, that have no power, no good power anyways, that'll mess up their life. There's still a bunch of false gods that people will worship today. And what we can take from this when we're reading this is as Christians, 
We don't fall for that foolishness. We know, that we know of the fountain that never runs dry. We know where we go to, uh, to get the help that we need. We know who can really bless our lives. We know who's the one that owns a cattle on a thousand hills. We know the one who has all the resources we could ever imagine. We know the one who can do exceedingly and abundantly more than we'd ever ask or imagine. So we're going to the real meal deal, Jesus Christ, when we need the satisfaction in our soul. We're not falling for the foolishness. We're not going through... We're not worshiping Jesus one minute and, and turning around and, you know, worshiping some statue or lighting incense to something um, or even, you know, living our life chasing down um, wealth like that's going to satisfy our soul. No, Jesus is who we worship. So there's all kinds of wisdom that you can learn from the Old Testament when you know the context. It takes some studying. But the primary thing that you need to take from the Old Testament, and this is what's transferred into the New Testament, from the Old Deal into the New Deal is the moral principles at play, how to be a good person, how to be righteous, um, how to worship God. And so pretty well all that other stuff is not applicable anymore, but these moral principles, they're uh, applicable for all time because they're showing the character of God. And we are made to be in the image of God. And, and so all of that is still very, very important. And I'll, I'll elaborate on that as we go. So we're in the second point here, what is still applicable? What laws within the Bibles do we, do we still follow? So again, the rituals, the sacrifices, the festivals, the dietary restrictions, the civil judicial laws, those are gone, but what remains is the moral law. So Jesus continually taught from the Old Testament. And, and you have to pay a very particular attention of what he's carrying over from the Old Testament. And, and what he carries into the New Testament, the new deal that's for us today, that still applies. And to make this really easy, is that Jesus is the key to understanding the entire Bible. He literally says in Luke 24, 44 through 45, that the Old Testament is all about him. And he went on to exemplify, when you know Jesus, when you begin to understand Scripture, when you look at it from the proper perspective and with his help, things just start to click and you, and you realize that everything lines up so beautifully. So Jesus, he's our guide to morality. He is our example. He is who we follow. Um, speaking of easily summarizing things, Jesus does this in Matthew 22, uh, verses 36 through 40. It says, Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So what Jesus is doing here is he's actually quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. So he is taking things from the Old Testament and bringing it into the New Testament, the old deal into the new deal, and saying that basically everything boils down to these two things, loving God and loving our neighbors. Um, some, of the, some of the moral laws, some, the one you probably be the most f uh, familiar with would be the Ten Commandments. You notice that Jesus teaches on these quite a bit, but also that they nicely summarize into those two statements as well. About half of them are about um, loving how you, how you love God, and the other half is all about how you love your neighbor. So you have to kind of expound upon that concept of how do you love God and how do you love your neighbor. And what God, what God is doing by all of this is he's not actually trying, he's not trying to take your freedom away. He's not trying to cramp your style. Christianity isn't about all these different rules. Christianity is about freedom. God is trying to give you a freedom by telling you what to avoid and what to stay away from. 
What is going to bring you life and what is going to bring you death? He knows that he's the best thing that there ever could be for you. And so he is setting things up in a way that you can get to know him and have a relationship with him and be protected from all sorts of of stuff out there. That you're not wasting your time chasing things that are never going to pan out for you. If you think of a life of lying and cheating and stealing, that would actually take a massive toll on your body. It would torment you. And, you know, it might be fun for a little bit, but over time, it would just wreak a lot of carnage on your life. And God is trying to protect you from that carnage and from that pain and from that hurt. God's continually trying to teach us how to be good, how to be righteous, how to live, the, how to live a life that honors God and honors others. And again, there's lots of scripture around that, but it will all boil down to love God and love others. But why we need to dive into scripture and begin to understand um, kind of what that looks like is we need specific examples because there's a lot of people out there today that say you know I love God and by the way they really live their life they totally don't or there's people that say you know I love others and again by the way they live their life in the standards set in the Bible they totally don't so because people can have a very radically different idea of what of who God is who we are and what love is we need to make sure that we're in scripture to make sure we have our heads on uh, screwed on straight And we know that if we are truly loving God, truly loving um, ourselves, and truly loving others. And here's a very critical point in this section. It's the last point in this section. Even if you were to follow all the commands that are in the Bible and follow them to a T, that will not get you into heaven. Um, The truth of the matter is, is that you're very likely breaking all the commands of the Bible on like a daily basis. But here's the thing, is that it's our faith in Jesus that saves your soul. It's our belief in him, recognizing his sacrifice for us, realizing he's God, and making him Lord of our life that saves you. Romans 3 articulates this quite well, verses 21 through 23. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. See, the more that you get to know Jesus and, make, and you make him the center of your life, everything else just begins to line up. The more that you know, you know God and the more that you love him, the more that you'll start to live that moral life, that righteous life. You'll have this desire to introduce other people to Jesus because you just can't stop thinking about him because he's so awesome. You'll have a desire to get into the word because it's a great way of connecting with God and you just want to have that relationship with him. Jesus really is the center of it all and when you know him, so many other things just begin to fall into place. What's really, really, really neat is we get to see this exemplified time and again here uh, in the church as ministers. Often when a new Christian comes to the faith, they'll, they'll kind of talk us through their journey and the different things they're kind of letting go of and the different things that they're starting in their life. And we'll often ask, like, who told you that? Like, how, how did you know to do that? How did you know that this was wrong or, or that this was right or that you should stop this or you could start this? And what's going on is that Jesus is talking to them. He's, 
The Holy Spirit that lives inside of us is actually ministering to them and giving them the prompting to go this way or go this way, get rid of this or keep doing this or start this, stop this. That, that happens. That's a, something that's amazing and supernatural that happens when you become a Christian is you have now this, this guide to help you um, live your life and live it in a righteous manner. Now, is this process easy? No. Uh, it's hard. We fail continually. It's a, it's a very hard thing. Um, one of my favorite verses that kind of puts this into perspective is Matthew 16, 24 through 26. And Jesus says to his disciples, if any of you want, if any of you want to be my follower... You must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is there anything worth more than your soul? It's a continual process of laying down our way of doing things and our opinions, you know, sometimes even our wants, our needs, and keying into God, what do you want? What do you need me to do? And we're continually pulled, you know, from every different direction you know, and, this, and pressured to live a different way. And so we have to continually lay that down. It's a, it's a battle every, every day to try to pick up, you know, our own cross and to follow Jesus and to do what he's calling us to do. But again, with that supernatural power it can, that is backing us up and Jesus, the God of the universe, as our guide, it can be done. Now I want to come to the kind of third section of this, this sermon, and this is the benefits package. This is the exciting stuff, really exciting stuff. And again, this is not an exhaustive list. We don't have time for that because there's so many great things about what happens when you become a Christian, when you invite Jesus into your life, when you make him Lord of your life. You know, when you believe Jesus is God, recognize that he died on the cross for you and then rose again three days later conquering death, and you've invited him to become Lord of your life, you begin to follow, follow him, first thing he does is he removes your sins from you. Something that, this is something that God does. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. East and west never meet. They never will meet. When your sins are removed from you, they're gone. Isaiah 43, 25 God talking here says, I, yes, alone will blot out your sins for my own sake, and I will never think of them again. When God removes your sins, even he forgets them. They're gone. Another verse I don't hear, but I really love this one. Um, it talks about that God would take your sins like they were stones and throw them into the ocean, and never going to be found again. I think we've only explored 3% of the ocean, still 90, 97% exp- Unexplored, and so if you think of if your sin was a stone and you just dropped it somewhere out in the Pacific Ocean or something and then tasked the entire world with finding it, they're not going to find it. When your sins are taken from you, they're taken from you, they're gone. God's forgotten them, it's the end of their story. First Corinthians 5 17 says that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person or a new creation, the old life is gone. A new life has begun. So when you give your life to Christ, you become born again. You become a new person. So all that old baggage that you used to walk around with, all all the mistakes you used to make, it's gone. You're a new creation. You're entirely new. There's nothing that you used to do that's, that's holding you back anymore. It's gone. God has forgotten it. He's removed it from you. Completely new person. 
Romans 8, uh, 1 through 2 says, There is now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. See, once God makes you a new person, you're absolutely pure and perfect in his sight. And you become worthy of being the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's very presence. And the Holy Spirit will break the power that sin used to have over your life. It will give you a power to conquer all the previous traps that you used to fall for. And the Holy Spirit does even more than that. John 16, 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, referring to the Holy Spirit there, He will guide you in all truth. The Holy Spirit will give you a discernment between right and wrong, good and evil, lies and truth. And because it's the literal presence of God living inside of you, it puts inside of you a serious power. Romans 8, 11, the same power that raised Christ from the grave now lives in you. The same power that was at play in the resurrection of Christ, his greatest achievement, his greatest miracle, now lives in you. And that power will manifest in different ways. Sometimes it's, it's through these different gifts that God can give us. Like you could pray for someone and that someone could get healed. Um, sometimes it can act like a teleprompter, kind of helping, helping you say what you need to say and in such a way that it, it comes out as just like a, almost like it was right from the throne room of God, the, the right words at the right time that someone just needed to hear. Holy Spirit can help you with that. Sometimes it's a boldness and a courage to share the gospel. Holy Spirit can do that within you. And there's, more, there's so much more. Again, we don't have time to go in, into all of it. But the Holy Spirit can do all sorts of amazing things in your life. One of the most encouraging things is that because God lives in you and you love him and you have that loving relationship with him, he can find a way to turn everything, everything in your life for good. No matter what you've gone through, he is all about redemption. If he can turn death into life, he can change your situation. He can come in and save the day. He loves being the savior. That's who he is. Uh, Romans 8.28 says that we know God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. I don't know what you've been through and what's gone on and what pain and hurt you've gone through. But I do know that regardless of what it is, God has the ability to turn it for good, to make good out of it, to, to make it a part of an amazing redemption story. So much so that you could look back years later and just say, wow, God, I would have never have imagined that that was possible. He can do that. Redemption is kind of his thing. He can turn our ashes into beauty, our sorrows into joy. He can turn our mourning into dancing. It's what he does. Furthermore, when the Holy Spirit is inside of you, when you, be, when you become a Christian, you're going to start to see some new things showing up in your life in greater measure than you've ever had before. Galatians 5, 22, 22 through 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We could all use more of that in our life. When the Holy Spirit comes into our life, we can start being more joyous than we've ever been before. We can get a supernatural joy, a joy that doesn't even make sense. We get a peace that surpasses all understanding. All of a sudden, we can start loving people like we've never loved them before. We have a greater capacity to love. We can be more kind, more good, more faithful, more gentle, and also have an ability to uh, con control our emotions better as well. Furthermore, when you become a Christian, you're given the best identity possible. You're given a new identity. It's the best thing out there. 
No, no one in the world could ever match this. First Peter 2.9, For you are a chosen people, you are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. See, when you become part of God's family, you become royalty. What are the chances someone here on earth is going to bring you into the royal family, adopt you as one of their own? Not a, good, not a good chance. Not a good chance. But God will welcome anybody to become part of the royal family of the universe. When you look in the mirror, when you go home, you can look at yourself and say, I'm royalty. I'm a prince. I'm a princess in the kingdom of God. I'm going to get to rule and reign with him for all of eternity. It's an incredible identity. It brings all sorts of self-worth to you. You realize royalty. I'm God's very own possession. I'm God's masterpiece. Besides that incredible identity, he also gives you an incredible purpose. These are the two base psychological needs of human beings. um, To belong and to have a purpose. And our, our purpose that we get with God is we get to be a part of the mission of saving the world. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19 it says, all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. No longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. It goes on to say that we've become Christ's ambassadors. God will make his appeal through us. God wants all of his children to come home, and we've become his messengers to share that throughout the entire world, telling people to come back to God. We could explain to them God's love for them, and we could teach them of that worth that they get when they become a Christian, when they get to realize their royalty, they're part of that royal family universe. We could tell them about what the Holy Spirit can do for their life and how it can change them from the inside out. We could tell them of how God can make all things in your life turn for good. He can redeem anything that's happened in your life. And there's more. See, even when our time on earth is up, the party's really just getting started. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only, uh, one and only Son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. With God, when you, <laughs> when you make Jesus the Lord of your life, when you sign on to being a Christian, you get to live forever in absolute paradise with Jesus. With a new body that is absolutely perfect. No more aging, no more aches and pains, no more tears, no more suffering. Sheer perfection for all of eternity. 2 Corinthians 5.1 says, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We get to live as sheer perfection in sheer perfection for all of eternity with God. It's amazing. That's the best deal that there is out there. It's the best, that's the best like lifetime warranty right there. It's eternal. When you realize the, you know, that eternity is awaiting you, it actually gives you a whole new perspective on life and suffering down here. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they will produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. 
That is a benefit package unlike any other. Whatever we're going through today, we know that our, there's treasure being stored up in, in heaven that is awaiting us. And we know that whatever this world could ever throw at us, it's going to pale in comparison to the future glory that awaits us. And so we can take encouragement saying that in the end, things are going to be absolutely incredible. In the end, I'm going to live in sheer paradise in a big old mansion that God has built for me. In the end, I'm going to have a perfectly new body and sickness will never touch it. In the end, I will never experience suffering ever again and no, neither will anybody else. In the end, all I, will, all, I will know, all I will know is just the amazing and awe-inspiring love of God. Life is going to be absolutely incredible in heaven. And it makes every trouble we have to walk through here worth it. Literally is the best benefit package of all time. Jesus is the best thing you could ever sign on uh, to and with. He's the best. It's the best deal out there, far and away. So when you become a Christian, it is literally the best decision you could ever make. In conclusion this morning, I hope I've helped you kind of understand the Bible a little more. Understand when you're studying it and reading through it, okay, what applies to me? What context is this from? What covenant is this from? Stuff like that. And for those of you that have yet to surrender your lives to Jesus, you've yet to make him Lord of your life. You've yet to recognize the sacrifice that he paid for you and paid in full once for all time that can set you free from all the sin in your life that is messing things up for you. Maybe you want to, you're thinking today, you know what, I want to become a new creation. I want to be made new. I need a fresh start. God can do that for you. For some of you, maybe you've done that before in your life, but you've walked away. It's been a long time. You've forgotten what the voice of the Holy Spirit within you sounds like. Forgotten what it means to live a life filled with love, joy, and peace, and patience. I have good news for you. God's mercy is big and fresh every day. Every day he's waiting for all those uh, people who've walked away to come back home. He's waiting with anticipation. He's excited about it. He can't wait until you come back. It would make God's day for you to come back to him and to, and to rededicate your life to him and begin to walk in his love and his goodness.